Good afternoon. Thank you for coming today. My name is Ruth Ellen Saint-Onge. I'm the Associate Curator of Collections here at Rare Book School. And it is with immense pleasure that I introduce to you today Kiana Whitted, whose talk, as you see, is titled Desegregating Comics, Debating Race in Early American Comic Books. So in February of this year, uh, Kiana delivered a keynote address at the Michigan State University Comics Forum. And I was lucky enough to be in the audience in East Lansing that day. And as soon as I heard her speak about comics publishers and readers, I knew that we absolutely had to invite her to give a lecture at Rare Book School. Kiana is a pro professor of English at the University of South Carolina, where she also serves as the director of the African American Studies program. She is the editor of Inks, the Journal of the Comic Studies Society, and she is also the chair of the International Comics Arts Forum. Her research and teaching focus on African American literature and American comic books, American comic books. And her scholarly work examines representations of race, history, and social identity in comics and graphic novels, and also intersects with Southern studies and the philosophy of religion. Her first major scholarly book, a, a God of Justice, The Problem of Evil in 20th Century Black Literature, was published in 2009 by our very own University of Virginia Press. In 2012, she edited the University Press of Mississippi volume comics and the US South with Brandon Costello. And this year, um, and I forgot my props, This year, Rutgers University Press published her book, EC Comics, Race, Shock, uh, and Social Protest. So if you're not familiar with EC or the entertaining comics group, they were known for publishing lurid comic, horror comics like Tales from the Crypt here. But uh, Kiana rather focuses on EC's so-called preachies, um, which were socially conscious stories that boldly challenged the conservatism and conformity of America in the 1940s and 1950s. So I will have a copy of her brilliant and engaging book available for you to examine at the reception that will follow this talk. In the meantime, please join me in welcoming Kiana to Rare Book School. Thank you. So much for coming out. Thank you, Jeremy and Ruth Ellen, for. Oh, I need to step closer to the microphone. Sorry. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I know that many of you have already had quite a long day, uh, so I hope I can find some useful things to say to take us into the evening. Um, it's been a while since I've been in Charlottesville. I've been telling everyone since 10th grade, and uh, <laughs> that was a, quite a while ago. Um, so it's a pleasure to be back and to be able to talk to you all a little bit about uh, the work that I'm doing. Um, I am going to speak a little bit about the EC Comics book, but before I do that, uh, given where we are and all of the great classes and students that I've met today with the Rare Book School, um, I'm going to start off in 1901. So in, in a 1901 essay by Frederick Burr Opper, the newspaper cartoonist describes the story world of humorous picture making for the readers of the weekly magazine, The Independent. Opera locates widely known comic strip character types on this terrain, 
including the gullible farmer, the blundering old man, policemen that batter and club from morning till night, and babies that all cry with their mouths open to enormous widths. Here in this place that Opera calls caricature country, racial and ethnic difference marks the clearest coordinates in the time and space of the comics panel. Quote, colored people and Germans form no small part of the population, readers are told early on in the essay. The Negroes spend much of their time getting kicked by mules, while the Germans, all of whom have large spectacles and big pipes, fall down a great deal. Right, so these are the, the caricatures that many of us already know. Journalist Jeet here has devoted a large measure of his critical work on comics to contextualizing taxonomies like offers within the popular attitudes and power dynamics of late 19th and early 20th century popular culture. The gross exaggerations and distortions of caricature that may make us wince today were exceedingly common and a particularly common mode of entertainment that was also foundational to the early years of the comics form. Quote, it is not just that cartoonists lived in a racist time, here states, but also that the affinity of comics for caricature meant that the early comic strips took the existing racism of society and gave it a vicious and virulent visual life. He also reminds us that over time, Jewish American and Irish American groups were becoming increasingly vocal in criticizing ethnic stereotypes that targeted them, leading to the declining numbers of these representations in comics. Now, unfortunately, it would take much longer for African American residents of caricature country to be heard by those in positions of authority within the comic book industry. Even by the mid-20th century, people of African descent remained hemmed in by the entrenched white supremacy of this landscape, which demands that the bend of their bodies, the registers of their speech, and the span of their desires stay locked into a single story. And yet, we know that African Americans read comics, found ways to enjoy them, and it is these readers that are gonna guide much of my reflections this afternoon. Even in 1901, Black readers read the comic strips that Opera describes, comics like this one, Hogan's Alley. But they also knew Occult's The New Bully and Poor Little Mose. Caricatures like this one, also from the turn of the century, with the pitch black skin, balloon lips, bulging eyes, and drawling vernacular of the Sambo. In the early years of the comic book industry, black readers would have read Dell Comics' The New Funnies, featuring the antics of Lil' Eight Ball, pictured up there um, on the side column, alongside Raggedy Ann and Andy. They bought the Spirit Sunday newspaper comic supplement, featuring the title character's black sidekick, the taxi driver, Ebony White. They knew that Whitewash Jones was one of Bucky Barnes's companions in The Young Allies, and they continued to read Captain Marvel even after his black valet steamboat became a fixture of the series. So next to these examples are a small but thriving sector of the comics industry developed by black writers and artists in African-American newspapers. In fact, the same month that Opera published his essay, The Colored American received praise for hiring its own cartoonists to produce, quote, original cartoons illustrating the characteristics of American prejudice toward the Negro. 
The newspaper would go on to publish a plea for other African-American newspapers to deploy the forum for social and political ends. In this column, um, one of the uh, fellow newspaper editors writes, cartoons and journalism are far more powerful than many of our journalists seem to think. We wish the Negro press of the country could form a cartoon syndicate and thus be easily able for all Negro papers to furnish an apt cartoon once or twice a month or once a week on live questions. <coughs> These cartoons would serve as eye opener not only to the race, but they would also attract the reading public in spite of prejudice. So clearly, there were many audiences that were aware of, as it says here, the power of cartoons and the power it could have on swaying the reading public. In the decades to come, newspapers such as the Chicago Defender and the Pittsburgh Courier would take up this call by hiring black cartoonists, publishing their own comic supplements. In 1947, journalist Oren C. Evans boasted that every brushstroke and pen line in his all Negro comics were produced entirely by African American creators in order to showcase a more positive showcase more positive stories. Such sporadic efforts, in fact, all Negro comics lasted all of one issue. Um, those, that effort supplement the efforts of other mainstream publishers that focused more on historical and biographical features of well-known African American figures like Harry Tubman or George Washington Carver or Joe Lewis. So as a result, um, entertaining comics the publishing company that I focus on in my book, was not the first to produce comics about race and racism, but they were often the most popular and the most profitable. Um, as Ruth Ellen has said, this controversial publishing company was most known for titles like Tales from the Crypt. Many of you, if you've ever heard anything from EC, it's probably been something like Tales from the Crypt um, or Mad, which was EC's longest running title, which as of this week is going to be shutting down, so no more, no more EC. Um, the focus of my book, though, is not on Tales from the Crypt, but on a profoundly influential type of story that EC writers and artists developed to directly engage the problems that Americans faced during the early Cold War and civil rights eras. I analyze how these social protest comics draw upon the conventions of EC's signature genres to confront racial prejudice, religious intolerance, anti-communist rhetoric, and other forms of social discrimination. Such progressive messaging was not limited to a single EC series. Sandwiched between bizarre tales of shock and gore, the stories that EC publisher Bill Gaines referred to as the preachies, and I'll say a little more about those later, uh, were just as likely to appear in a work of fantasy as well as one focused on suspense. So one of the things that fascinated me the most during the course of my research were the insights that I gained into EC's audiences and their reading practices in the 40s and 50s, particularly among a secondary audience of African-American comic book consumers. I'm interested in what we can learn from the way this invisible readership took pleasure in the medium while making their own tracks with nimble persistence and flair in and around caricature country. How should our understanding of comic book history change when we acknowledge the history of black audiences and their negotiated reading practices? Along with young, white boys and teenagers who were 
the majority reader of, of comic books during this time, there were girls, there were adults, there were non-white consumers among the millions of readers supporting the comic book industry in the 40s and early 50s. Among the few readership surveys completed during this time, one of the most widespread was from a 1943 study by the Market Research Corporation for Fawcett Comics that found that 95% of elementary age children read comic books often, with the percentages declining gradually as the children reached high school. A similar study published in 1945 focused specifically on black children's comic reading habits. This survey found that, quote, the average number of comics magazines read by Negro children is considerably higher than the average for white children. Black children, boys in particular, read significantly more comic book titles than their white peers, and as the study further demonstrated, read them more frequently. Ultimately, while black comic book consumers remained outnumbered by their white counterparts, they constituted an especially devoted readership purchasing and sharing a larger selection of comics. So in the years to come, psychiatrist Dr. Frederick Wortham would draw somewhat similar conclusions. Are we familiar, anyone in the audience here with Frederick Wortham? Maybe? No? Okay, so I know you are already. Let's talk about Frederick Wortham. He would go a step further to use the heightened interest of young black readers to hit the panic button on the detrimental impact of comic book reading on the rest of the country. The study of comic books for which Wortham is most well known today began in Harlem at the Lafarge Clinic as part of his examination into the causes of behavioral problems among America's youth. Uh, so there's uh, Dr. Wortham in the center of this image here. Intake forms routinely asked children, the majority of whom were African-American or from lower income families, what they were reading. And counseling sessions made observations about how these young people related the story to their daily lives. By 1954, the time of the publication of Wortham's now famous polemic, Seduction of the Innocent, the Lafarge Clinic boasted of their role in bringing yet another public health problem to the nation. Once articles by and about Wortham began appearing in Collier's Magazine, Ladies' Home Journal, Reader's Digest, the Lafarge Clinic became inundated with speaking requests from librarians, parent-teacher associations, civic and religious organizations, particularly in the Northeast. If Wortham couldn't answer their requests himself, he sent his colleague, Dr. Hilda Moss, or another clinician to give a standard lecture. So this book sort of made Wortham a minor celebrity when it comes at least to thinking about comics uh, in the 50s. Due in part to his interactions with young people at the Lafarge Clinic, Wortham often singled out these imperial jungle comics for their stock depiction of savage black primitives preying upon innocent whites. And we want to keep in mind that this is the time during the 50s when superheroes, while very popular, were not the most uh, popular in terms of the only genre being produced and sold during this time, right? There's crime comics, there's westerns, romance, teen, uh, and jungle comics were ex exceedingly popular. According to historian Gabriel Mendez, Wortham insisted that comics were, quote, manuals for the promotion of stereotypes that engendered low self-esteem among black children, as well as anti-black sentiment and action among, among whites. Without stricter regulation, Wortham argued, these comics would continue to foster race hatred. Yet, 
In the early profiles and national publications that took up Wortham's crusade, he and the interviewers tended to steer away from this kind of problematic racial imagery, emphasizing instead the explicit depictions of violence and sexuality aggravated by crime comics. And so, in other words, all of the popularity that Wortham received, again, especially in these national newspapers, when they talked about the dangers of comics, the photographs that accompanied the articles clearly demonstrated who was most at risk, white middle-class American children. In one piece, Wortham explains that, quote, children of families in which lower income is hand-in-hand -hand with lower intellectual standards are the most omnivorous comic book readers. While the children's racial identities are not specified in many of these articles, multiple clients from the Harlem Clinic are quoted in the pieces, including, and one in particular in Collier's, an opening anecdote from an 11-year-old boy in which he pretends to be the crook who ties up the actress played by his sister. On the page, however, professional models reenact the scene. The white children's menacing expressions reinforce the conclusions drawn by the Collier's Magazine writer that from the extreme and abnormal avidity of comics reading, not even the so-called upper classes are immune. Indeed, comic book reading is portrayed in articles like these as deviant and harmful activity that first ensnares the poor, uneducated, and unsupervised urban youth whose circumstances have made them deeply susceptible to the comic's power of suggestion. But the real horror in the nursery, I actually love that title, right, uh, was not the reading habits of black adolescents in Harlem. The real horror was the fear among some white parents that their children would be next. After a meeting in Meridian, Connecticut, Dr. Moss was told one about one particularly rebellious comic book reader from a strip, strict upstanding family of five. A librarian said of the boy's behavior, Quote, he is like from another race. So to what end do these perceptions serve? White comic book readers are perceived as impressionable consumers who nevertheless have a number of choices available to them when it comes to their reading material and leisure activity. They simply need the right guidance to help them make good decisions. Poor black youth are offered up as easy prey for the predatory comic book too vulnerable and lacking the resources to fend off the mid-century boom of cheap, sensational fare. Now, to be clear, Wortham's study generally fails to account for discerning young readers of any race. But his inability or unwillingness to acknowledge that African-American consumers may have come to the pages of comics armed with their own set of critical reading strategies and cultural decoding skills is a particularly glaring oversight I think it is. Consider that a city newsstand in 1950 that was willing to stock an issue of Negro Romance or a sports comic with Jackie Robinson on the cover, he had his own series for a minute, uh, would have also sold those imperial titles like Jungle Comics. They would have also sold newspapers uh, featuring the final appearances of Ebony White's buffoonish antics in the spirit how do the dynamics of identification and participation play out in a form that asks black readers to invest in these fantastic feats of imagination from a wide range of stories, some of which marginalize and denigrate their very existence? How might these mid-century readers make meaning out of the competing codes of strength, 
justice and power that they encounter. In thinking about these questions, I have found discussions of negotiated reading practices based on Stuart Hall's concepts to be especially helpful in thinking about how marginalized readers bring both adaptive and oppositional viewpoints to bear on the formulaic storytelling structures of comics. Such negotiations concede certain elements of the status quo that are affirmed in the story. So for instance, egalitarian ideals about the American way or the rights of the common man while pushing back against disturbing assumptions about racial and gendered representations that structure the image and text. We might consider then the resistant readers who, rather than rejecting a comic altogether, enact a multitude of story world adjustments and situated logics with each turn of the page until they find a place where their reading is rewarded. Such a negotiated reading practice can be found among the group of multiracial junior high school students from New York called the Youth Builders. According to comic scholar Brian Cremins, the Youth Builders visited Fawcett's executive editor, Will Lieberson, in 1945 to make the case against Captain Marvel's sidekick, Steamboat, who was not in the movie. He saw Shazam, who later was taken from Captain Marvel. Uh, and so these teenagers, they said to Lieberman, quote, this is not the Negro race, but your one and a half million readers will think it's so. In another example, here's research, oh, sorry, Charles, this is not. In another example, here's research uncovered an exchange between an editor at King Features Syndicate and cartoonist Roy Crane two years earlier over the appearance of black characters in two installments of the adventure comic strip Buzz Sawyer. Crane was cautioned against including such images because, quote, experience has shown us that we have to be awful, awfully careful about any comics in which Negroes appear, the editor wrote. The Association for the Advancement of Colored People protests every time they see anything which they consider ridicules the Negro no matter how faintly. In 1947, a group of black school children wrote to Dell Comics editor Oscar Lebeck about this comic, Little Eight Ball. Their complaints, along with pressure from the cultural division of the National Negro Congress, led Lebec to discontinue the character. So such complaints were not always successful. In fact, more often than not, they were not successful. But I've pulled out these here uh, to demonstrate and to make a point. It would seem that the double consciousness, as W.E.B. Du Bois conceived of the condition, applies even to the unreconciled strivings of young black comic book readers during the height of the industry's popularity who repeatedly insisted that the enjoyment of titles like Captain Marvel, Buzz Sawyer, and the New Funnies should not come at the cost of their dignity. So this is the moment in which entertaining comics enters the scene. And here's publisher Bill Gaines on your left and Al Feldstein, the editor, um, on the right. Bill Gaines strived to make the experience of reading his comics fundamentally different from that of other comic book serials. Continuing story arcs were rare and easy, and there were no recurring superheroes, funny animals, or cowboys. Titles like The Vault of Horror, Weird Fantasies, you can see their crime suspense stories, each of them were in a kind of anthology format. So they contained four to six shorter stories with a beginning, a middle, and a devastating end. Uh, people like to compare them to like, O. Henry stories or Twilight Zone or things like that. 
Over time, however, the comics of EC's new trend line became associated with a shared network of strategies that were designed to cultivate serialized reading practices among their regular readers with tightly plotted narratives and a range of artistic styles across genres. As Gaines explained, we take our stories very seriously. They are true-to-life adult stories ending in a surprise. That's our formula. The formula that made EC's tale so successful also helped to create the conditions for more explicit social and political protest, particularly in the comics known as the Preachies. So they didn't set out to moralize and teach people lessons. In fact, EC used to stand for educational comics before the title was changed when they realized that horror and crime would sell more money, sell more comics, make more money. Um, but the case that I try to make is that they used, again, some of those same conventions to squeeze in between all the shock and the gore, these preachy stories. Critics of these comics, which I'll talk more about in a second, do not hesitate to characterize the stories as ham-fisted and overly didactic, while admirers speak just as effusively of the guts that it took to print them. Their surprise plot twists tend to underscore the deep moral failings of the status quo through acts of violence and depravity that reflect the contradictions of the post-World War II era known as both the fabulous 50s and the age of anxiety. E.C. responded to this moment with stories like the slave ship from Weird Fantasy Number 8, in which the sailors who are transporting a cargo of African people are themselves enslaved by a spaceship of aliens. This is something that E.C. loved to do. And I know that the slave ship was on the poster for my talk. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about it, but if you have questions, we can talk about the monsters on the slave ship. The Patriots from Shock Suspense Stories Number 2 that dramatize how swiftly a culture of containment within middle-class suburban enclaves can trigger a flashpoint of deadly mob violence. Perimeter from Frontline Combat Number 15 captures the tensions among white and black American soldiers in newly integrated platoons during the Korean War. Judgment Day, the science fiction story that first appeared in Weird Fantasy 18 in 1953, features a black astronaut sent to inspect a planet of orange and blue segregated robots. Master Race from Impact Number 1 concludes with the grisly death of a, forming, a former Nazi commandant hounded in exile by the guilt he feels over his role in the Holocaust. So those just as a sampling of some of what these stories, the preachies, um, are about. I'm going to I'll conclude my talk today by taking a closer look at another example, not any of those, but again, I can circle back to them later if you like. Um, and this one is called The Guilty. It came out in 1952, uh, written by Al Feldstein and illustrated by Wallace Wood. And on the first page of The Guilty, a black man named Aubrey Collins has been arrested for murdering a white woman. As Collins is ushered inside the jail, a mob of white men surrounds the building with raised fists, grimace faces, and vicious words. From the moment the cigar-chomping Sheriff Dawson calls for his deputy to bring the N-word on up, and it's not spelled out there, it's symbols, um, it is apparent that the town's representative of law and order is virtually indistinguishable from the vigilantes who want to take Collins 
out of the jail so that they can, quote, take care of him. When a civil liberties lawyer from out of town arrives to defend Collins, the sheriff takes matters into his own hands. And on the way to the trial, the sheriff forces the black man out of the escorting police car at gunpoint, telling him to run. Later, Sheriff Dawson will explain, quote, I shot him while he was trying to escape. But in the very next panel, the reader learns that the so-called witness, a white man, confessed to the murder just moments before. A final narrative caption makes the story's message explicit. Uh, EC Comics were also very wordy. You can see there's a lot of words in that last panel there. And in the yellow, whether Aubrey Collins was innocent or guilty is not important. But for any American to have so little regard for the life and rights of any other American is a debasement of the principles of the Constitution upon which our country is founded. Published in the June-July 1952 issue of Shock Suspense Stories number three, The Guilty was the first story in the series to focus on anti-black violence and the racial disparities of the modern criminal justice system. Regrettably, the sheriff's brutal disregard for black life may not have been all that shocking when the story appeared, but what did seem to take many readers by surprise was E.C.'s decision to publish the story at all. Two issues after The Guilty appeared, the entire page of the Shock Talk letters column was devoted to the mail that the company received about the story. Most letters offered congratulations and encouragement. Quote, I have been reading EC publications ever since they came out, and I have always taken it for granted that they are the best in the business. But after reading Shock Suspense Stories 3, I found out something new. You guys have guts. Yes, it takes guts to print a story like The Guilty. Another writer called the story outrageous, explaining, I am not prejudiced against any race, but the story just shocked me. I realized that it could happen, but I just don't think it should be printed in a comic book. Also included in the column was a letter from an African-American reader. I am colored and do not object to this kind of story. On the contrary, I wish there were more to show how shameful and horrid prejudice really is, how it is a mar on the beautiful face of America. The story is all too real and true, and all America should read it. And I can say more about the sort of veracity and the politics behind letter columns in the, in the discussion, if you like. Um, but these are really interesting. So what was it about a story like The Guilty that took guts to print? Prior to 1952, black characters held only minor roles in EC Comics, mostly as sly practitioners of, quote, black magic from Haiti or from the African continent in horror comics titled with things like voodoo death. Aubrey Collins introduces a different approach to representations of blackness. His jailed and murdered body places racism at the center of the guilty, and captions directly challenge readers to consider how their own lives intersect with the cruelty and intolerance illustrated on the page. Likewise, Collins is portrayed in defiance of racial typology. He is a lean African-American man of average height, dressed plainly in cuffed blue jeans and a white shirt, Colorist Marie Severin adds medium brown tones to the heavily inked figure with a slightly darker shade for the tight curls of his hair. His body is contoured in the deep shadows and expressive lines that distinguish Wood's style, but does not appear ominous. In the scenes that emphasize his facial features, his eyelids, nose, and lips are delineated without exaggeration. So in other words, he's nondescript. He's almost generic. 
in a way that indicates an effort on Wood's part to underscore the character's basic humanity and to elicit sympathy. Of course, his dark skin is itself coded and culturally determined. From Collins's first appearance, his skin marks deeply entrenched beliefs and assumptions about his identity, particularly for the white men with rifles and fists who refuse to treat Collins as anything other than a murderous brute. A phenotypically realistic image of an African-American man was therefore crucial in conveying the comic's message. The character walks forthrightly through the angry crowd, and even when handcuffed and frightened, his posture and grave expression aspire to a kind of quiet dignity that places pictured realities at odds with social assumptions. Wood and Severin make Collins's blackness easy to see, but difficult to read. Now, the one thing Collins does not do, and a lot of African-American characters in EC, the one thing they do not do is speak. Now, visually, he's a sympathetic figure, but without a voice in this comic, the depth of his individuality remains slight. So he literally does not talk. He does not talk. He shakes his head, but he doesn't talk in this comic. The concluding scene in which Collins realizes that he's being set up by the sheriff provides us with an opportunity to learn more about the accused, to see, or, to see and hear him speak on behalf of his own self-interest. Unfortunately, Feldstein mutes the black man's solitary act of protest in the narrative captions, saying, quote, Collins got to his feet. He stared at the gun for a moment, again, shaking his head. It is left for the illustrator, for Wood, to articulate the panic of his final terrifying moments through the twist and arc of Collins's body as he captures or catches the sheriff's bullet and breaks through the center of a stunning three-panel sequence. The scene's keen pacing is accelerated by frenetic auditory registers, sounds that range from the pouring rain to the gun's fatal blam. Collins, on the other hand, appears to be suspended from the rest of the page in a separate dimension. As he collapses into the mud and bleeds to death, the black character doesn't even cry out. So I approach comics like this one as part of a much larger history of the struggle of African-Americans to earn recognition and artistic representation as more than phantoms of white fear. This is a history of contradiction, one in which Captain Marvel's steamboat exists alongside the silent but dignified characters like Aubrey Collins and the guilty. African-American writers like James Baldwin and Gwendolyn Brooks had already begun to interrogate the logic of white supremacy in a manner that pulls deeper, pulls readers deeper into the complexity of black life in the 1950s. Mainstream comic books were still figuring out how to have these conversations without alienating white readers, their parents, librarians, and distributors. By the time that The Guilty was published, and mind you, it came out the same year as Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, which is interesting, by that time, EC had cultivated a community of young oppositional readers who were willing to engage a story that forthrightly addressed the racial violence and discrimination of those in power. Importantly, African-American readers also took pleasure in the kind of comics that EC made popular. In Carol Tilley's study of the letters written to the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency in 1954, she has identified numerous African-American readers who wrote in support of EC and other comic book publishers. In a postcard from Newport News, Virginia, a black reader named Cleo Brown, I know you probably can't read that, uh, she writes, 
I read all kinds of comics and horror magazines, and I don't see why it should make any difference after reading them. At the end of each story, it shows that good wins over bad, no matter how horrible it is. A student named Curtis Meningall Jr. from Livingstone College, a historically black college in North Carolina, wrote to, quote, defend the comic books which are hanging in the balance. Meningall served his country for three years in the Air Force. And by 1954, he would be elected as Livingstone College's freshman class president. In the months after the Supreme Court handed down their landmark decision in Brown versus Board of Education, the letter that Meningall wrote to the US Senate to defend the comic book industry suggests that he knew that the reach of the Supreme Court's decision could extend to popular media, to film and television, and even to the pages of an EC comic. Quote, the said named books are quite relaxing, educational, and vital to our American literature as a whole, he writes. And then at one point, he says, quote, violence as read by the reader is looked upon as evil and immoral. Hence, we see justice triumph and are pleased. He even notes that during his time overseas, these books, quote, served as food, medicine, morale builders to him and his fellow airmen. The picture that Meningal portrays is a far cry from the image of vulnerable, victimized young black readers in Wortham's research. And what the young student values in the story, above all, is triumph, is the triumph of justice, the only term he emphatically underlines in his handwritten message to the most powerful governing body of the nation. Ultimately then, I see my work on EC as part of a larger effort to uncover a more racially complex comics narrative landscape. Here is a country populated not just by caricatures, but shaped by the conflicting codes, tensions, and ambiguities that reflect broad critical negotiations of race and difference in popular media. Thank you all so much. time we have for questions, but Jeremy will let me know. Questions, thoughts? Nineteen fifty one is sort of but yes, about that time. Mm -hmm. Well, in the interviews that Gaines and Feldstein would do later, they often said that, you know, they had these sort of social and political passions and ideas, and they wanted to figure out a way to work them into the stories. But you get the impression that if it had been not profitable for them, they would have found ways to pull back. And so they made a couple of strategic decisions. Um, a lot of times, again, what you find is one of those stories, again, sandwiched between two or three others that are just outrageous and variations of entertaining, they would say, only designed to entertain is what they would use. And then you also find, like in Judgment Day or in The Slave Ship, those stories appeared in the science fiction comics, which were the worst selling of the EC. So, I mean, it's, I think it's no mistake that you don't find many of them in Tales from the Crypt. That's the comic that sold 500,000 copies a month. Right, And so there was always a kind of moral message underlying even some of the goriest comics, 
but they were very careful with the ones that made the most money. Mm -hmm. Oh, this, this girl here, this lovely little girl. Uh, well, um, Ruth Ellen and I have been talking about these photographs. Um, this one is actually by a photographer from Pittsburgh in the 40s and 50s named Teeny Harris. Um, and he took pictures of young black children and people in Pittsburgh doing things like reading comics. And so I, I put this everywhere I can because it's a reminder that we don't often, when we look back at this period, think about comics readers being African-American or being girls. Right. And so it's quite a wonderful reminder of that. Yeah. So it, uh, at about this time, mostly what you're going to find are newsstands, drugs were types of drugstores, five and dime type stores, newsstands on the street, and mostly in urban places. Although you would find comics at general stores elsewhere um, as well, so it, they didn't have the same kind of subscription system where they would be mailed comics like we would, or stories like we would think of today. Um, and distributors played a major role, um, especially after. For those of you who know about the advent of the Comics Code, which put a lot of restrictions on what comics could contain, thanks in part to EC and its scarier stories, um, if a distributor didn't carry your comic, it wasn't going to make you much money. Um, so they had to have good relationships with distributors, which is another reason why, again, I think it's important that I mentioned to you all before, all Negro comics with its cover lasting one issue um, the publisher was not, the, the legend is that he wasn't able to um, buy more newsprint. He wasn't, he wasn't, um, they would not sell him more newsprint in order to make the comic. Meanwhile, EC, which is a very popular mainstream comic book company, doesn't put black people on their covers. It's not advertising the kinds of preachy that I've talked with you about. Instead, it's putting mummies and vampires and other shocking things but not shocking in that way. And so it's able to still get the attention at least until the 50s, the mid 50s when the comics code went into effect. That was a long answer to your question. <laughs> yeah. Newsstands is where they would pick it up. Yes, in the back. We do have his notes, and those are the other people at Lafarge um, from some of their interview sessions that they would take. Um, his papers are now wonderfully preserved at the Library of Congress, and also the Schomburg has his papers. And so I was able to see, and there are other comic scholars who've done extensive work on this. I'm thinking of people like uh, Chris Cosino, who've done work to see um, sort of how his notes match up to some of the things that he said in his book. And he was known for manipulating. He was known for hyperbole. He took things and really sort of blew it up. He liked to make connections between what the kids were saying and sort of newspaper crimes that were committed and show that comics were related. 
Um, so, to, but to answer your question, we have mostly the notes of the people who worked at the clinic, um, not transcribed word for word, but just comments about what they read and their thoughts on it. Oh, about slave ship, yeah, right. Right, so the slave ship is one of the first preachies. It was sort of their attempt to sort of bring in history, talk about a very difficult issue like slavery, and to do it in a science fiction um, story. And it's interesting, um, I wish I had more pictures of the, on the, the slideshow here uh, about this, the sort of aesthetic choices that they make. Um, because E.C. was known for this sort of, uh, people like to call it a kind of Old Testament eye-for-eye eye morality where the culprits would get done in the same way. And so to take these, um, or to show and illustrate the plight of these enslaved Africans, on the one hand, during a time period in which um, the main characters, the crew, are Dutch, and they're engaging in this, um, trade during a time in which the transatlantic slave trade, at least um, for the U.S., has been outlawed. So they're committing a crime already, which is convenient, right? <laughs> and uh, so then what ends up happening is they're trying to flee the Coast Guard, and a slave ship, their slave ship, is found floating on the ocean empty the next day. Um, because what has happened is an actual spaceship with these aliens on it has appeared and taken the crew into space. And this is something that EC liked to do a lot, so it really kind of holds your hand and walks you through it. And so the sailors are made to feel uh, the punishment of something that feels like a whip. And then they're made to, uh, they're told to shut up and stop talking the same way that they told the enslaved Africans to, you know, to stop talking, stop praying. And so they're kind of slow to make that connection. And then finally, just as unfortunately the um, sailors did with the enslaved Africans, the aliens flushed them out of the, the cargo hold, just like the Africans had been dumped into the water, and end up sort of exploding in the vacuum of space. And so this is that eye for an eye morality. And it's shaped in such a way where you sort of, you blame the captain instead of the system because he's doing something wrong. He's illegal. He's doing something illegal. He's meaner to the other sailors. He's not a good person. Um, and so they try to sort of have it be strategic and have it both ways, where they could talk about the slave trade, talk about the wrongs that were committed there, but not blame, you know, all Americans or blame the entire system. It was this bad apple. Um, so they made a couple of strategic choices. They also liked to do things where they would combine the technology of, in this case, the 19th century with futuristic technology and put them side by side. They do that in a couple of comics as well to kind of show a kind of temporal dislocation. So I talk a little bit about that uh, in the book as well. It's a cool story. <laughs> oh, well... ECs have been uh, reprinted in very expensive $50 hardcover volumes, so I had to rely on a lot of library archives in order to get access to them, Library of Congress, um, some PDFs that I got. 
places. Uh, but fortunately, um, Fanagraphics and a few other places are reprinting um, multiple volumes of the series, and many of them include these, these preachies. So when EC was often boasting about itself, it didn't talk about the Tales from the Crypt stories. It talked about the preachies because they like to talk about, you know, look at how good we, what we were really doing was great. And you all didn't realize it at the time, kind of thing. In this story, the slave ship, they, they were supposed to make that connection, but only because, as you can see in this right panel, like there's a crewman who's saying, who's kind of translating it for the readers. So it says, it's angry, it wants us to shut up, which is sort of replicates exactly what the captain did to the enslaved Africans uh, two pages before. So it sort of puts that parallel. I mean, it was really heavy handed. I mean, it, it, was, it, made it, it wasn't subtle in terms of that comparison. But again, sort of cross, crossing that language barrier and doing those things, they took their readers and put them in these fantastical situations to, so, to show that if the situations were reversed, you know, this, if an alien came down from, from space, this could also happen to you. And a lot of the stories, the horror, turned on that, this could also happen to you, kind of thing. Well, fortunately, EC had such a strong fan community that many of those comics are well-preserved, right? They're still fan addicts, as they like to call themselves today, who circulate titles and comics and talk about the reprints. Um, and so you can find lots of um, archives around the country who, who would have like a full run of EC. The problem is, is with those other comics that I showed, like the all-Negro comics or the Negro romance or the Jackie Robinson comics. Those are the ones that are now only available in one or two places and that archives are doing more work to try to recover and so I'm, I'm all for that effort. I was able to read the Jackie Robinson comics at the Library of Congress for instance and that's you know besides the illegal PDFs online it's the only place you can get it right. So that kind of work I think places like Michigan State are doing a lot, um, Ohio State um, they work on a lot of the earlier 20th century and even late 19th century newspaper comics. Um, and then most recently, I should say, my own university, um, University of South Carolina, has acquired a collection of 180,000 comic books. Um, it's a pretty major collection and we're still, it's gonna take a while to figure out all that's in it. Um, my first question was, you know, how old are the comics in terms of how far back do they go? Because I'm really excited to be able to find more things from this period and even earlier. Um, so I'm glad to see more of that work being done.
Sure, yeah, so EC was an, a little bit unusual from some of the big companies we may be thinking of that do a kind of, of uh, assembly line production because Gaines and Feldstein wrote most of the stories. And so they had um, you know, a dozen or so titles. They were bi-monthly, came out every two months. They each contained four to six stories. And so Gaines and Feldstein worked together to storyboard and script most of those stories. So he um, was, after about four or five years, totally exhausted. And then they started to recruit more writers. Johnny Craig, um, Harvey Kurtzman, um, who would later go on to do Mad. So there were maybe two or three others, and then they would contract for a few. But, but um, a lot of the preachies that I've discussed were mostly written and, and scripted by Gaines and Feldstein, which, um, again, was sort of unusual, but also helps to support a kind of consistency from title to title. And so EC sort of coveted this idea that if you read one of our comics, you're going to love the other 11 because, you know, there's a similar kind of story structure and model. Um, after they storyboarded and scripted uh, the, the story um, for each issue, they would then give it to the artist. And EC was also unique at the time for allowing the artist to illustrate whatever they wanted based on what the script uh, um, called for. So they had a lot of of uh, freedom to do that. They also signed their work and they stood apart because whereas a lot of artists during this time would have been um, sort of anonymous, you know, fans started to know like, oh, this is Wallace Wood and this is Jack Kamen and this is Graham Engels. So they got a little fan, little superstars, uh, at least within that context of, of the 50s. Um, so that stood apart as well. So they could bring their own unique perspective to the illustration of the story. And they often added things that weren't called for explicitly in the script. And that's what makes studying comics especially interesting, is that the art is there to not just illustrate the story that's in, in text and in dialogue, um, but to work along with it in a kind of interdependent relationship. I love the poster. Thank you so much.